Welcome to Visionaries. My name is Jacob Wolf, and I'm an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. We are back. I'm very happy to be back with you all. We have not had an episode since October the 13th. There's been a lot of things going on over here on a personal level and a professional level. Personal level, I got married. I got married, yes. And uh, good for my wallet, bad for my mental health. I planned the entire wedding myself. I got married in New York City at the end of October and the took over all the planning myself, which honestly it was... As someone who's produced live events, it was very similar to producing a live event. Unfortunately, the hardest part was when, you know, you pay someone to do teardown by 1 a.m. and you get a call when you're drunk in your hotel room at 1244 and no one's there to tear it down, despite you already having paid them. You know, that's I great. Know about that. uh, I didn't hear about yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, but I was, uh, yeah, it, it, we're through that. We're through the Thanksgiving holiday. We're back. And we got a couple of housekeeping notes. I'm here with Prem, as always. Don't want to forget to introduce you. Prem, how Howdy. are you? I'm all right. Been a hectic last couple of months because you you got married. I was at that. I had TwitchCon the week before. My parents and you got sick at TwitchCon. I, oh, yeah. I got... I did too much, party too hard at, at TwitchCon, and then got sick. And then just like, I was, I was basically non-functional for a week. It was awful. I I would have I would have gotten better by by the time I got back if I hadn't after your wedding gone out and partied with Shannon Lau until three a.m. I can't believe you did that. I literally just went back <laughs> I can't to my believe hotel I dragged room. Mark along for that. Yeah, that was funny. We <laughs> one of my close friends, one of my groomsmen, Mark, we we were bullying, doesn't drink a lot, and we bullied him into drinking very much during my wedding because we had a bunch of people, we had a, a limit of five hundred or sorry, of fifty people that we could invite. And we had some people last on us RV on eh, RSVP. And so we had a lot of booze and a lot of food. And my favorite thing was saying Ahmad Khan, friend of the pod, fellow journalist and former colleague of mine bring like nine Tupperware containers to take home all of my wedding catering because I didn't I mean, have a big enough fridge in our hotel room to do that. Like, so I wasn't going to let it go to waste. We went to two different bars on Halloween weekend in New York City in in Brooklyn and oh fuck what was the other area? It, Brooklyn somewhere else. I'm not a New Yorker. I'm sorry. She carried that bag with two of the aluminum trays full of food just around. That's wild. I, I don't know how you guys did that. I like I said, I went home, I went to sleep, or went back to the hotel and went to sleep. Um, Second winded, dude. Yeah. Sometimes well. you gotta. I felt bad because I ditched her at multiple <laughs> events at TwitchCon. <laughs> I was just like, I'll be at I'll be at this after party. Didn't go. I'll be at that after didn't go. She invited me to the Dolce and Gabbana party. Didn't go. You you are a flake, except when it comes to staying out until three in the morning in New York City. So apparently. Good for you. A couple of housekeeping notes before we dive into the actual episode at hand here. So first of all, we are moving visionaries back to Wednesdays. We transparently, because I like talking about this stuff, we've seen that Wednesday engagement tends to be a little bit better. I think a lot of people, and right, rightfully so, I completely understand this perspective, turn off their phones on Fridays or after work Friday and like don't have time to consume content. We've seen a lot of our listens tend to trend, even with publishing on Friday, tend to trend on Tuesday and Wednesday. So I'd rather just so everybody is up to date, 
I'd rather just start publishing on Wednesday. So we are back to publishing on Wednesdays. That's the new schedule starting today. We'll be with you next Wednesday. We'll probably be taking some amount of time off around Christmas. So we may not have an episode on the 27th, but we should have an episode on the 6th, the 13th, and the 20th. But super glad to be back. Housekeeping note number two. Spotify wrapped is out. And we I woke up this morning to a message from a friend and listener of the show who he was literally the like 0.1% of fans of this podcast of the thousands of people that listen. So hell yeah. Thank you very much. Shout out to Connor for that. And then we saw Tracy Parks, uh, formerly of Golden Guardians, tweet that he was also a super fan of the pod. So we've gotten a few of those, public and private. And we thank people for for being super into this podcast. It's been this was our first full year of doing the pod. And I think we we've learned a lot. I think we're going to be implementing a lot over the next few months that kind of showing those findings, I guess, is the best way to say that. But thank you guys for staying with us. And even though we've been inconsistent at times and glad to be back. Last housekeeping note, as always, we have a Patreon. It is linked in the show notes. We really could use your help signing up. If you are not familiar with what we're about and what we're doing on the Patreon and you are listening to this, the goal here as the Patreon is myself and Mikhail Klementoff, the former Washington Post games journalist, as well as, you know, Prime and the rest of the Overcome staff behind the scenes supporting it. We are essentially trying to create a gaming media company and starting with us as kind of a test case of how this will go. We've been really happy with the support that we've received already. We are still moving some people over from Substack, which takes forever. So thanks for bearing with us if you're one of those people. And we are super excited to have this community. I was just tweeting a little bit ago about the fact that I think social media platforms are really, really hard to reach your audience, even if they actually care about what you're doing. So if you want to get the most reliable reliable content feed from us and also have access to us because there's a discord attached to it. Join us over on Patreon and know that you are supporting something that we want to do bigger and better as well. So thank you all for all that. On the Patreon note, if you're listening to this when it comes out, you'll want to be on the Patreon uh, by next week, December. What is that? Fourth? Is that the fourth? I think that's the fourth. Yeah. The fourth. We're going to be doing a bit of a content blitz for, for December, really, and as strong as possible with this, uh, a lot of content. And there'll, there'll be some things there that you'll, you'll definitely want to be a patron to, uh, to be in the conversation. There are a couple things I can tease in that, by the way, before we kind of dive into everything. So first of all, I've been working for a couple of years now on a long-form investigation I can't dive into a ton of what it's about, but it involves some of the biggest streamers on Twitch and some of the biggest creators on YouTube. And this is super, super pertinent. The reason it took me so long, as investigative pieces often do, is it's pretty opaque. It's kind of hard to understand the system. I've recently been talking to some academics on the record, some professors at various different law schools and accounting schools about this, but that, that should be out here in the next couple of weeks. Mikhail and I are also, I don't mind saying, digging a little bit into what happened with the LCS and Golden Guardians and Evil Geniuses, though I have stepped away from some of my more beat reporting, roster reporting, etc. In the League of Legends community, I've been really surprised to not see much information around that story. So we're, we're working on it. 
And also on the more lighthearted and fun part of things, we are going to be hosting a Marvel Snap tournament. The I guess it's technically the second week of December, but December starts this Friday. We're going to be hosting an in-house Marvel Snap tournament with our patrons. We had some people come play Among Us with us for patron game night a few weeks ago, and that was really, really fun. But yeah, we're going to run like a kind of small for fun in-house tournament for Marvel Snap. And also, if you sign up to the Patreon before the end of the year, because we've extended this, if you sign up to the Patreon before the end of the year, you lock in your price, various different tiers, but the base one, $7 a month. And if you stay subbed through the end of the year, you are eligible to get a you're eligible to get a medallion token from us early next year. So we're gonna be we're gonna actually make that a community process where we essentially have various different designs that we're gonna be showing off to everyone and we're gonna let our patrons and community members chime in on which one they like. And then we'll go from there and have have our medallion coins made and shipped out to all of our patrons. So if you sign up to the Patreon, don't say you don't want don't say you don't want physical goods because that does not give us your address. And then we are not able to get that to you. And though we will be reaching out to the people that check that box just to make sure they understood what they were checking. But that makes more work for us. So please, please just just do the whole sign up. All right. Now to the episode. So we are our I spoke recently with Matt Shambari, who is a game developer. He is running a studio of his own now. He's a co-founder of Lightforge Games. Lightforge is making a really interesting title that is, I guess the best way to describe it after talking to him, because I didn't quite get it prior to this. Think Dungeons and Dragons, gamified, and when I say that, you probably immediately think of Baldur's Gate, but a lot more sandboxy. So one of the things about Baldur's Gate, one of the most popular games of 2023, is Baldur's Gate has a lot of D&D-esque type mechanics to it. But many of these stories and the outcomes, the characters, et cetera, the sandbox you are playing in is fully designed around you. It's an RPG. It is different than many others, but you don't have full control. One of the things I think so many people like about Dungeons and Dragons is that the DM and the group can basically make whatever the hell they want and you can do whatever you want and your character can be whatever you want, right? Like this is a very kind of tabletop RPG classic thing. No game really exists like that. And that is what Matt and his team are trying to build. And I say trying because I think it's extremely difficult to make this work. And I, from a technical perspective, but Matt's experience, I think he's got the right experience to do this and the team around him. He previously worked at Epic Games working on UI on Fortnite and then Fortnite Battle Royale. He was also a lead engineer at Blizzard. He worked on World of Warcraft, Heroes of the Storm, and a couple of other titles during his time there. And so this is someone who's definitely has a very long history in the gaming space. And I was able to talk to him about both what they're doing now at Lightforge and some of the stuff that's going on at Epic and Blizzard. As everybody knows, Epic recently made a bunch of different layoffs. They're kind of going through some financial restructuring. Everybody in the gaming industry is hurting one way or another, but they, you know, they were the biggest developer in the world for a period of time. So that makes it a big deal. And then Blizzard recently acquired by Microsoft. After, you know, many, many, many allegations of sexual abuse and harassment within inside the company. And so I got his thoughts on that as well. Prime, you listen to the interview. What'd you think? I mean, we've we've done a lot of interviews in the past with with developers with like a lot of experience. And I think this kind of follows in a lot of the same trends of so many of these these developers that that start starting new companies or or new projects entirely they 
they have learned so much more than I think an average person would kind of uh, acknowledge. If if you told me someone had worked on TFT or I guess League of Legends, Fortnite, and Blizzard or and and Overwatch, I would have a a preconceived set of notions of kind of what what is that set of experiences, but. I think with how much of a a kind of tonal shift we're seeing with with what Lightforge is making, we we get to see the the culmination of all of the experiences that that the team has. It's not just the like handful of experience they have professionally, but from from the interview, it, it's clear that this is such a a passion project. It's it's addressing this this need to be able to kind of create that role-playing sandbox without the the initial hurdles of like trying to do it in tabletop sim or or another like tt rpg type uh simulator and give being able to give players the tools to kind of dictate those stories is like you said it's it's unlike anything that we've really ever seen because usually someone is is making those decisions. Someone is either the game or at least has the putting story. like a an outline around them, right? So right. like you can, you know, all all the best RPGs, like there are trees basically is the way to think about it. And depending on what branch you go down, you stay down that branch, right? So you do you choose to be evil, do you choose to be good? That's like the most basic of trees. Do you choose factions, right? Like that that is kind of the classic Fallout, you know, Elder Scrolls, et cetera, type RPG. In this case, and I, I'm curious. I'd be curious to know why someone like Wizards of the Coast, the creators of, or you know, creators of Dungeons and Dragons, may be an oversell. They certainly create all the Dungeons and Dragons stuff now. But I'm surprised someone like Wizards of the Coast or someone else, you know, a bigger name in the space, not a startup, has not tried this before. And my instinct is because technologically it is extremely tough to make something like this, right? Because you can institute character creation. You can allow people to, you know, make their characters. You can provide them classes or whatever it might be, just like Dungeons and Dragons. But the, when it comes down to the, you know, what what's the most fun thing about D&D where like, oh, you went into a cave and there's this pitfall and this is what you have to do to get out. Like all of those like various different things that a good DM will do in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign is extremely difficult to gamify and to turn into a game, a seamless game experience. So I'm I'm very eager to to see how they do. And, and I think we'll probably at some point be playtesting it and we'll see if we're able to share what we think after we get the opportunity to playtest when they do their next one. Yeah, um, but, great. you know, this is this is a pretty significant challenge. Yeah, and I and I think I, I think that he was very he was very honest about about that hurdle. Like this is like it's it's not something that's been done. If if the closest we are we're gonna get right now is is Baldur's Gate, there's a lot of, of like iteration that can that can still happen. In terms of wizards and i think other like tabletop developers i mean i think it's it's a combination of a few things wizards for start like they don't they don't do a lot of stuff like this like the games they have are very structured and and i don't 
given they are a company that the the way their kind of mentality is is to provide the resources for kind of these pre-existing adventures and then once you have a lot of experience playing pre-existing adventures the onus is on you to start homebrewing and and customizing and building out your own campaign i think that there would be some trepidation in terms of providing those resources up front and i i wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of the mentality as to why why wizards wouldn't do it like wizards wants you to already be engrossed in the the process and the product that they have made before you you take the step to creating something more more bespoke and i think i mean i think that's wrong i think that having that platform would be generally amazing but we don't have it it just doesn't exist closest, yeah, the closest, closest thing closest we is tailspire tailspire does a really good job of like giving players a lot of the sandbox stuff but it's it's still very much like tabletop simulator where once you've injected like your own monsters and kind of built a a dungeon it plays like Baldur's Gate. Everything is is on a on a grid. There's totally static movement, static rolls, and, and I don't think that's what uh, that's what Lightforge is making. Well, actually, I was going to say when you said what the closest comparison would be, I was going to say Fortnite Creative. You know, he brings yeah. up kind of one of the inspiration moments for what he's doing, which is his, I believe, his nephews playing oh, right. playing Fortnite Creative and basically just playing cop and robber, and you know, just here's guns go shoot each other right like a very classic like kind of do whatever you want you make the rules and yeah fortnite creative is that but i i still think that fortnite creative has it has enough of a curve that i don't think you could do everything they want to do in it right like the hardest part i think of the challenge here as you'll hear him and i talk about is giving your audience a giving your audience a enough like enough stuff but not making it so overwhelming that the barrier to entry is really hard it still takes some amount of work to build a cool fortnite creative experience something that most people probably don't have time to do or cannot do and so i think that is the real challenge for for them is going to be giving a ton of content, creating this sandbox that everybody can play in and set up their rules, but not making it so overwhelming that like, you know, we talk about keeping people engaged, getting to a point where like every time you want to start something new in this game, it's this huge setup process. That's like exhausting because at that point people are just going to click out and say, screw this. Right. Like, and that's audience retention is going to be hard. And so I, I thought it was a really unique conversation about that. And and also, he was very honest about the, the stuff around Microsoft and Blizzard as well, which I appreciate. Here is our interview with Matt Shimbari. Matt Shimbari, welcome to Visionaries. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I want to, in this interview, cover what you did at Epic, what you did at Blizzard, and how you yeah. decided to go independent and do what you're doing now. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've had a couple different game devs that have somewhat similar of a story to you in the past couple of months. We had the folks from Treehouse Games who mm-hmm. were like a real pleasure. They worked at Riot. And now they are going completely different direction than what they were working on. They're doing like yep. more cooperative co-op uh, type play, multiplayer play now. 
Uh, and then we had Jeff Gardner, who I, I love yep. doing that interview with him. Jeff's great. Um, I know Jeff. And yeah, kind he's of, great. Yeah, kind of like the, he's kind of sticking with what he knows. You're not, though. You are no. working on RPG games. You And most recently worked on Fortnite for an extended amount of time at Epic. Yep. So tell tell folks a little bit about what you're up to now, and then we can kind of dive through the whole game. Yeah, so uh, what you said is correct. I've spent uh, a large portion of my career working on competitive esports games, which I love, big fan of them. You know, I love going to the events, all that kind of stuff. Um, But after spending, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it was, uh, in competitive games, I really wanted something new, something different. Um, And for me, I love RPGs. I've always loved RPGs. I always wanted to work on an RPG at some point. And so uh, that's what we're working on now is an RPG. Um, But also... Um, we, I wanted to work on something very different and unique in the RPG space. And so this particular game is something that's been kind of like swirling around in my head for the last 10 years or so, almost like a holy grail of this, this idea of like, how do you capture that magic of tabletop RPGs, um, and bring that to like a mainstream video game audience? Like that's really what we're looking to do is, um, you know, that, that, that social connectedness, the creativity, the flexibility, the things that. Like when you get around a table with a group of people to play a game like D&D or any other tabletop RPG, you're getting together and you're basically just laughing with some loose rules. How do you make a video yeah. game around that, right? Like that it was really the core challenge. And how do you make a video game that's accessible and approachable so that like a kid can come home from school, turn on their PlayStation and hop right into a match, right? As soon as you say that, that opens up like a Pandora's box of like all these challenges uh, that you have to you have to solve for. But I was really excited by those challenges. Uh, and also because like, this is a good example of the kind of game where, you know, some people make where you make a game that you want to play, right? And this is something for me, it's like, I want to play more tabletop RPGs, right? I love the idea of them. Problem is when you start playing them, they can be really bogged down in rules, really hard to get into and hard to bring your friends in, right? I've tried many, many yep. times to bring in my friends uh, or my spouse or, you know, family or whatever it is. Um, and there's just so many challenges uh, to to getting them into it and, and playing regularly, right? And, and when I say regularly, I don't mean a common uh, group for tabletop RPG where it's like every other week. Um, I mean, like three or four times a week, like, like you play yeah. other video games, right? How do you make a game that like allows that kind of behavior? So those are all the kinds of questions that we are uh, tackling with this particular game. There's a lot to digest in there. I do yeah. want to talk a little bit kind of about these sandbox aspirations you mentioned there, because I think that is the, it's the hardest part about modern game development, but it is simultaneously, I think, one of the most exciting things. And it's almost apt that you worked at Epic because they are one of the leaders at doing that. I, you know, obviously, Fortnite Competitive in 2017, 2018 had such a huge audience and is responsible, I think, for, you know, gaming going mainstream at a, at a kind of critical mass that it had never been. But now I would say Fortnite Creative is much bigger. And, you know, mm-hmm. we saw with their most recent layoffs, Tim Sweeney basically saying that a lot of the profits that they're making are from creator partnerships, et cetera, and their ability to let people build inside their world in the sandbox. Yeah. yeah. But that's challenging in game dev to allow, to basically offer the tools to be a full sandbox. So how much of the balance are you like in what you're building is I want people to have a ton of optionality, the ability to do a bunch of different things in this game while still having some amount of rails, because ultimately you have to have some rails. Yeah, I mean, ultimately software is still running. So a computer needs to have mm-hmm. a good definition of what's happening, right? Uh, so you definitely, um, you, you hit one of our core challenges, but also what, what is surprising about it too is it's both a challenge and like an ease um, because in, in some ways we don't have to build everything either because the sandbox nature of the players can really build a lot of stuff too. And so I'm going to roll back for a quick second and talk about some like Fortnite inspiration that I had had in the early days around this. And that is that 
um, uh, I forget when it was, maybe 2019-ish or so, um, my little cousins uh, wanted to play Fortnite. They were maybe nine or 10 years old at the time. And they knew their big cousin worked on Fortnite. And so they're like, oh, can you come play Fortnite with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll play Fortnite with you guys. I figured we'd play Battle Royale and dance and build a, you know, Stairway to Heaven or whatever it was, right? Um, and so I'm like, okay, you guys play however you want, right? And I'll just kind of tag along. And so they hopped into creative mode. Um, and all they were doing was um, spawning some guns, you know, building some walls, spawning some, some things. And then they would just like pick up the guns and be like, okay, we're going to shoot each other now. Three, two, one, go, right? And they would just run around and start shooting each other. There was no score. There was no game. There was no like, you know, like process running. They were just playing like you would play in your backyard, right? Like, you know, kids would play cops and robbers back in the day or something like that. And this is just like the raw form of play. And I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, you know, here we are on the team thinking through all of this work that we have to do to build all the scripting systems and the UI and a customizable UI so that you can have a leaderboard and have all these like systems built in. And these nine and 10 year olds are just playing naturally, just this natural raw play, right? And thinking like, wow, that's really yeah. cool. There's something really powerful about that, right? And so that to me was like one of those like click moments that once we started working on this project, I thought back to that. I'm like, you know, we don't have to build everything, right? Like, the, like, like in our game right now, we still don't have like a proper inventory like you'd expect in an RPG, right? Because we just talk through it and it's totally fine. And yeah, one day we'll probably have an inventory, right? Or, or a proper inventory like you'd expect, right? Yeah. But still three years later, we haven't had to build it because we just talk our way through it. And that's totally fine and totally acceptable, right? So yes, there's a lot of challenges in the sandbox style. Like how do you have, uh, how, do you, how do you program a piece of software where anything is possible? How do you make a game where what you're saying and imagining is just as important as what's happening on the controller? That's all really big UX challenge without question. But also at the same time, we can remind ourselves, but we don't have to build everything. Your imagination fills in a lot or your, your ability to just like kind of talk through things mm-hmm. fills in a lot. And so finding that balance, I think, is, is important. Um, and it's, it's a nice blessing, too. It's so interesting for me as someone, you know, I had a childhood best friend, still keep in touch with them, that 12 years ago, like when we were in high school, was doing that. Like they were a Roblox dev, very early Roblox yeah. dev, like just, yeah. you know, building around the early stages of Roblox. And that's what they enjoyed doing. I had another friend that I met online that became a close friend of mine who was super into Arma in the same type of way and was able to sort of build, again, kind of just whatever they wanted to build in Arma and would spend weeks at a time building kind of whatever they wanted to play in in that game because it was ultimately moddable. To me, it it feels like that is where gaming is headed. You know, we we hear kind of all these like talks about metaverse and this and that. Like a lot of this is buzzword bullshit, but I, I think ultimately at its core is what it means is like, choice of the players, right? Yeah. And allowing people to do what they want. And there's a part of that that in RPGs is inherent, right? Like the, yeah. the fact that it is all choice. How do you balance kind of the traditional RPG set outcome? There, there are choices, but they lead to a path or yep, a set of right. paths yep. versus a, the more tabletop stuff, which I, you know, I don't pay, play D&D, but I love the idea of D&D uh, where it's like, you can kind of do whatever you want. Your DM yeah. like chooses your adventure, basically. How do you yeah. balance those two things? Uh, so we don't balance it. Uh, it is entirely the latter, right? Where the story can go in truly any direction um, uh, because we don't have scripting. We don't have cutscenes. We don't have things that, um, you know, you would find in a traditional RPG when it comes from a story standpoint. Now, we certainly have prompts. We have a lore. We have all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, right? Now, that's, that's important. But the way that I think about it more is that we give you like a canvas to start with and then you can take it any direction you want. There's no predefined ending. Like if you take a game like Baldur's Gate, right? I love Baldur's Gate 3. It is a fantastic game. It is the pinnacle of CRPGs, right? Um, yep. And there's so much choice in that game, but it's still finite. It's finite choice. It's essentially a decision tree that is very, very dense. There's probably millions of nodes in that decision tree that you can possibly make. 
but there's still a decision tree at the end of the day, right? There's yep. still something that had to be defined and described uh, at the very ending. There's only so many cutscenes that play as your final cutscene, right? And it's a lot more than you typically see in games, but it's still a finite number, right? Because something had to be predefined. Every time you play, you have to go through the Gauntlet of Shar. Every time you play, the goblins are going to be fighting against the... the I'm, I'm spoiling the game. The game's still pretty... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> anyway, every time you play, there will be key moments that were pre-made, pre-scripted, right? The way our game yep. uh, uh, does it is in, instead, we give you more of a setting, more of that sandbox, more of that, that space to start from. And then you really can take it any direction you want. You know, we've, we've had games uh, where people, um, you know, decided that they were tr- trying to rescue um, the blacksmith that they had to rescue from an undead dinner party where they were trying to be force-fed maggots. And that was a really interesting, fun, silly thing to do. We had another game uh, where someone took a, a very similar scenario and the direction they took it was that the necromancer was uh, an influencer, a creator, and they had to actually uh, do a collab with them and do a dance, uh, like, like a dance video, music video with them, right? Totally different vibe, totally different direction based on the same prompts, right? Um, and so like, that's kind of the, the idea is that like, no, like in either of those scenarios, it would have had to be pre-scripted in some way for that to, to happen. But because we give you a starting point and then you take it from there, I think it's a very different perspective on how the game plays out. And that's where that, I, I feel that magic comes in because you really don't know um, uh, how it's going to uh, shape up until you start playing and start talking. One of the things we cover on this pod a lot and have for the past year and a half since we launched it is uh, markets, uh, yeah. specifically TAN, and how you sort of find the people that want to consume your product, play your product in your case yep. as a game developer, et cetera. And um, something you just said uh, in that first answer you gave me is very, uh, it's very VC fodder uh, in the sense of <laughs> it is uh, build something you would like to use. Sure. and. I, I totally get it. Like you, you know, if you have, if you're the consumer of what you want to use, like the product's probably going to be better because you're like yeah. very driven and passionate about it. But I think sometimes people in gaming, um, from probably, you know, the oldest developers all the way to people that probably around my age or so, 26, 27 people that have been in the space long enough at this point. Sometimes we can put blinders on ourselves. I think where we are so focused on what we want and what we think, a small group of people want and don't actually start asking ourselves hard questions about yeah. markets. Yep. And, and I'm curious how you think about that with what you're building, because you guys are venture funded. You've raised a significant amount of money to do this. I'm curious how you think about how many people will actually want to play yep. this and yeah. like what that scale looks like. Yeah. So first off, um, I, I totally understand what you're saying about uh, kind of like falling into the trap of just making a game that you want to make. Right. Um, uh, I learned that lesson uh, via my time on Heroes of the Storm, right? Um, that was a fantastic game. It was, a, I think, a better, a better design MOBA than League of Legends, to be perfectly honest. Um, and it was a game that certainly were, easier, by the way, as yeah, someone yeah, who yeah. played like has played League for yeah. basically since season two. Um, so it's way if, easier. And if you were a Blizzard fan and if you didn't have a lot of time, um, it was a great game for you, right? And so essentially we made the best MOBA for a Blizzard developer. Right. It was a fantastic, if you were on that team, if you were at Blizzard, like that was the, that was the MOBA for you. It was a fantastic game for you, but it didn't resonate with the much larger audience. Right. <clears throat> I think there's reasons for that. We don't have to get into necessarily here's the storms uh, lessons, but that's something that I think about a lot, right? Is uh, a, don't be hostile to a hardcore audience and B, make sure you actually understand what the large audience <clears throat> wants. Right. And so for, um, <clears throat> sorry, um, for, um, for this game in particular, right. We definitely think about the, 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 the tabletop RPG audience, right? Um, as a as an important core, right? Um, 
there's this like persona that we, we use uh, called the core Kyle, right? Uh, it's just random names. Uh, and the core Kyle is the, is the um, you know, is, is the kid, is the, is the player that comes in uh, and they're like really, really, really hardcore. And they, they're like the, their proponents. They're the one who bring other people in as well, right? So we think of the tabletop RPG audience as being that kind of like initial kernel, right? Um, but it's just a piece of that uh, total addressable market, right? The, the real market, uh, at least initially, uh, we view as the RPG market, right? Because this is a video game. It's a video game first. It looks like a video game. It feels like a video game. Um, and we're actually calling it um, a new subgenre of RPG. We're calling it a CS RPG, right? Specifically to actually distance ourselves from the tabletop roots because yes, it has that flexibility that you get in tabletop, but beside that, it, it looks much more like a video, right? Um, and so we're calling it a CS RPG, which stands for Collaborative Storytelling RPG, uh, which is essentially an RPG whose core gameplay is augmented via collaborative storytelling, just like an ARPG is augmented via hack and slash, right? Um, and so we, we view our total addressable market really as the RPG market, the MMO market, the social market, right? Uh, which is a very, very, very large market. Um, and, um, and anyone who has, say, heard of D&D and maybe is intrigued by it or, you know, tabletop RPGs in general, people who watch Critical Role but maybe can't play, people who tried D&D and bounced, um, people who want to play it more but can't because they don't have uh, the ability to bring friends in, like that is a, is a large audience, a very large audience. And that's really what we're attacking first. And the other way, uh, if you talk about VC fodder, this is going to be VC fodder, you ready? Uh, so uh, the other way that we think about this is um, when you start to think about what the, um, like the, 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 what the biggest opportunity is over the next five to 10 years in gaming, I truly believe that that biggest opportunity is that aged up Roblox audience, right? You basically have an entire generation mm. of kids who are used to playing a game in a certain way and those kids will age up, right? Um, and so uh, when you're looking at the way that a lot of people engage in Roblox, a lot of kids engage in Roblox, they're playing these rules, light, social, creative games with their voice always on with their friends. And that's kind of a very common play pattern. As they start aging up and they get to be 15, 16, 17 years old, they're going to start looking for richer gameplay experiences, um, in particular RPGs, competitive games, things like that. Um, yep. But they're already going to have this play pattern that is native to them of that rules, light, social, creative style of play. And so our intention is to be ready for them. Uh, as they age up as well. So if you're asking about TAM, like, yeah, I do believe that this can be a very large audience. Yeah, it's what you were just describing. One of the investors that I like respect most, I've like read a lot of the stuff he's written about. And um, I was listening to a podcast that he did a couple months ago. And this has really stuck with me because I've talked about it with multiple people. Chris Pike, who used mm -hmm. to be on the board of Twitch. Uh, Chris basically describes... Um, uh trends is or like investing is waves yeah and like being an entrepreneur is waves you can't create a wave you can only just ride a wave right and i think to use fortnite as an example of this i think what fortnite did really really well and part of the reason it was so successful is kind of two things one it hit on a very crucial era of streamer yeah and it was very right. streamable it was like streamable game yep it was something that you could stream if you're ninja or tim the Tapman or any of those guys that were like the top guys on twitch when it came came out uh, it battle Royale had already shown some promise there with PUBG and with H1Z1 King of the kill. Yep. And Fortnite was the more accessible version. That's part two crossplay, which, and every being everywhere. That is the one thing I think people yes. don't talk about enough with Fortnite is the fact that you could watch Ninja play that on his PC. And then you, if you don't have a PC and you don't have yep. you know, a thousand plus dollars to go drop on one, play it on your phone. And it is relatively, the same experience, relative. Yeah, like obviously, actually, it's not I, the exact same. I would same, point out, console close. is actually where the majority of the audience was, right? 
when you're looking at especially yep. the younger audience, um, you know, like the middle school aged kids, uh, they were playing on PlayStation and Xbox almost exclusively, right? There was a massive audience there. Uh, and that's like where, when Fortnite became the cultural phenomenon that it was, um, it was primarily on that younger audience via console. Like, like Fortnite, like one of the, the kind of funniest things that Fortnite did is it made dancing cool for middle school age boys, right? Like, like that's a cultural phenomenon there. And that was really riding on the back of console and, and crossplay uh, in particular and crossplay. I'm a big, big fan and proponent uh, of uh, crossplay. I think that it was very, very uh, beneficial for Fortnite. I think it's very beneficial for all games, honestly. Yeah. Like it just removes, especially like mobile to systems, like yeah. mobile to console or mobile to PC crossplay, like right. the ability to. I think the one thing that has held gaming back, this is why I'm personally so high on mobile games as, an, as a concept, even though I don't think like there have been a lot of mobile game flops that have put a lot of love, no, no insult to Riot Games, but I think uh, Wild Rift has been a huge flop for them compared to what they thought it might be. But I, you know, I think mobile has a lot of potential because of the accessibility, because you don't have to be wealthy or, yeah. or at least affluent to yeah. have a $500 console or a thousand plus dollar PC. Right. You can get right into it from your phone. Yeah. And, and that to me is really, it's quite exciting, right? Yeah. It's the, it's the reason the Nintendo switch is the highest selling console device for, for a reason. Cause it's yes. got the smallest price point. It can be carried everywhere. Like it is, there's a reason the switch is yeah, so successful. That's absolutely right. Even, even in the PC game space right now, I'm finding my play pattern has completely switched to the steam deck, which, you know, it's more expensive than the switch, but mm. it, it follows a closer pattern to that where it is, is cheaper than a PC. Uh, and I can bring it everywhere. Like I played Baldur's gate three almost exclusively on my steam deck. Yeah, I've been playing my PlayStation more now than I think I I've been playing my PlayStation five more than I ever thought I was yeah. playing my PlayStation four before. Like yeah. I almost ignored my PS4 and just like exclusively PC yeah. game for, uh, you know, but now it's like I want I went from playing a ton of multiplayer games and being like kind of a sweaty gamer to sure. uh, being, <laughs> being much more like chill the fuck out and, you know, go play on my couch by myself, like chill with my wife yeah. and like <laughs> exactly. while she watches me play stuff, yeah. you know, like a lot, a lot more casual play pattern. Yeah, um, that's right. On the TAM note, too, yeah. I'd, I'd love your thoughts about uh, the investment market for game developers right yeah. now. I think that um, we saw a period of time especially during the pandemic and shortly thereafter, 2020, 2021, uh, which is the environment that y'all raised in. Yeah. And the where because gaming had such a boom in the pandemic, it was like very easy to just like point at the sign and be like, this is the next big cultural thing, which it was going to be regardless of the pandemic. Yeah. I think the pandemic just supercharged it. Yep. Um, and so we saw a ton of investment into independent game developers. And obviously there's been way more flops than there have been successes. Um, and I'm curious now with you saying it correct, how you think about the evolution of your business, because I am certain that that is scary. You know, obviously you have to like plan uh, what happens and like, if you need more time to develop your game. Yeah. And um, I'm curious how you think about the future of the business in a, a corrected market around video game investment. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't think that the current market kind of correction with VC investment has had a massive impact in how we think about our business, right? Because like we we put ourselves on a path, um, you know, that is, um, you know, hire a team, develop the game, put it out there. It's a, it's a path that we felt strongly about regardless of the amount of funding that we received. Um, and, um, you know, as we're moving forward, like that plan of 
when to announce the game, um, you know, when to uh, start an early access, all that kind of stuff is still the same plan, uh, regardless of the kind of funding environment right now, right? Um, you know, because I think it is the right plan for the game and for the business. I actually got some really good advice from one of our uh, investors who's on our board, um, uh, probably like two years ago or something like that. Um, and he, he suggested to make sure that you keep your business plan and your fundraising plan separate, right? Do what's right for the business mm. and then the fundraising, you know, then do what's right for the fundraising at the time of fundraising. But don't, don't build your business plan around fundraising because that's how you get stuck into that trap of like kind of endlessly chasing investors or, you know, things like that. And, yeah. you know, and it can be really hard to avoid that, to be perfectly honest, because there's always the existential threat of, oh man, if we run out of money, that's it. So what do we do to not run out of money? Let's set ourselves up for that. And then you find yourself falling into that trap. And it's really easy to separate yourself from the, from the goal, which is make an awesome game, right? Because mm-hmm. step one is always make a fun game, right? Um, actually, I watched your uh, interview with Ben Brode and he said the exact same thing, right? I, I know Ben from Beckett Blizzard as well. Uh, if you don't have a fun game, nothing else matters, right? So you've got to have that fun game first, right? Um, and I think that we've been very fortunate with our game where we found the fun early uh, and then we had to build the rest of the game. Uh, so I feel really good about that. That's really, it's, it's an exciting uh, place to be. And it's a really positive place to be. But that's the first thing. You have to get that, right? Then, you know, you start mm. doing all the, the more businessy things of like, okay, what's the go-to-market plan? Do we have enough money to do that? You know, uh, what's the TAM? You know, what are the projections? All that kind of stuff. And to be perfectly honest, right? Like that's not even my core skill set. I'm a developer. I'm a programmer first. Uh, I'm learning a lot of this stuff on the job. I've been a very adjacent, very connected to the business side of things, of course. Um, but you know, me and you both, by the way, as a creator who now runs a media company. Yeah, so right, yeah, exactly. I, like I think, I mean, honestly, I think that that's probably a good way to run a business is to be creator driven, to be developer driven or whatever it is. Um, you know, I think that's, that's, it, it, there's a certain advantage, like, you know, uh, street cred and stuff like that mm-hmm. with the team. And so I, I, I'm, I'm glad for that, you know, and I'm, I'm very much learning on the job when it comes to the CEO responsibilities. Um, but I also have an amazing group of advisors, friends, coaches, uh, you know, board, all that kind of stuff that really helps fill in that gap as well. Um, but um, yeah, b- bottom line though, is that I can't really think of too much that has caused us to change path because the macroeconomic situation changed for where we're at right now. It might be different if we're out in the wild, selling the game, trying to balance revenue versus costs or something like that. But where we're at right now is that we spend money, right? Um, and, um, yep. you know, uh, and certainly we, we will need additional funding. We're actively fundraising right now, actually. Um, but, you know, it's not like we built our entire development plan around um, the shifting economic climate or anything like that. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Ben uh, because that, was, that interview was almost a year ago. Yeah. And the uh, I just celebrated my one year Marvel Snap play anniversary. <laughs> I took like a maybe I took maybe about two months off, but yeah. I'm now back in the thick of it. I was playing it today, yeah. like in between uh, in between work. Like yeah. I was taking my lunch. I was playing Marvel Snap on my phone. Um, it I think that they are in terms of indie devs. It is certainly helpful when you have a Marvel IP to drive you, sure. right? Yeah. Like I, I think about like I certainly gave the game a shot because it was a Marvel game. Yeah. That I've also played some of the other like Marvel mobile games, and they're fine. They I can't remember the Contest of Champions. There's one that's a fighting game that yeah. like yeah, yeah, I, think I right. played yeah. for a period of time. Yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, it was fun, but it didn't hook me in the yeah. same way that Snap has for you know basically a full year now. Um, and I gave it a shot because it was Marvel, and I'm yeah. a Marvel fan. I think. Uh, but I love the core gameplay. Yeah. Like absolutely it's, it's just a great game. love it. Yeah. And, and I think that, but I don't know if I would have given it a shot had it not been Marvel, mm-hmm. even if I would have loved the gameplay, even if the gameplay was the exact same. Yeah. And I'm getting to a point here. I, because I want to ask about how you reach 
your end consumer and how you get people to actually play your game once it's out. Because you're the first dev we've had on the show since sort of the uh, what's happened to Twitter. And, and it is it's horrific. Like I, I'm talking to a bunch of other content creators, yeah. et cetera. Uh, Twitter is, you know, they use the same terminology for you as TikTok. Um, and uh, but Twitter, Twitter's for you is rage bait. And uh, yeah. TikTok's for you is actually like curated content to your interests with a pretty good algorithm to get in front of you. Um, you know, you search enough cats, you get more cats. Um, and so, Basic you know, to me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Uh, not the same as the for you on Twitter, yeah, which yeah. is whatever makes you angry the most. Um, and so I don't think, unfortunately, kind of my thesis on the flow of information, and I think this directly impacts advertising yeah. for a game like yours and any, any type, of, doesn't matter what video game or not. Um, Unfortunately, I think the social media is a viable way to do outreach to people is yep. like dying kind of right in front of us. Like yeah. Reddit's losing a ton of users right now yep. because of all of its API changes and uh, the way the community is, you know, a bunch of communities have completely go, like just shut down and left the site. Um, Twitter is having some of the same problems. It's just like, again, rage bait and just tons of bots and just like overflow. It's noise. It's all noise. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I the way that I see the future of the Internet and information, and I think about this a lot as a creator and a journalist is it's going to go back to much more similar, in my opinion, to what the internet was like in 2000. I remember my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother would get her information from like aggregated newsletters, places that would basically put together all the different like news links. You know, we grew up in Atlanta, so local to Atlanta, people would send stuff around in news groups and newsletters lists. And I think that's what the internet's going to look like for obtaining information. Now it's going to be discord groups. Yeah. It's going to be newsletters. It's going to be like basically these small communities, but yeah. it's hard to even get in those communities. That's the problem. I think discovering them is going to be harder yeah. and harder. And it presents a unique marketing challenge for myself, for you, for other people yeah. that are doing this type of stuff. I'm curious now with all of this evolution, how you think about how you are going to reach the people. Cause clearly there are a lot of people that would be interested yeah. in the concept of your game. I think you're right about the market. Uh, but how do you even get to yeah. that? Because I think it's never been harder. Yeah. So, I mean, um, what you said about Marvel Snap, I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, essentially, IP can be a fantastic way to lower your UA costs, right? People see Marvel or some other big IP and they're like, ooh, I want to try that. And so your UA costs just go down. User acquisition costs just go down, right? Um, so that, that's a great way to get more eyeballs to you know check out your game. That's great. Um, where I think that we have been heading and are heading like as a, as an internet, uh, is towards those micro communities. Like you said, I think that, um, a lot of, uh, user patterns are starting to switch to discord groups in particular. You get, uh, there's a lot more activity in discord. I think that, that, that I'm not like an expert on this, with a lot of like research behind this, but, um, my own like anecdotal experience is seeing a lot of people move away from Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, to discord. Because I think there's been this real fatigue around this idea of broadcasting to the world right? To everyone, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's driving people more towards these micro communities of family groups, friend groups, shared interests, whatever it is, right? They're these micro communities. Um, and it's, um, it's it's something that, that when you even look at like just gaming in general, multiplayer gaming, right? Um, that's how a lot of games were played in the 90s to early 2000s, right? Like when I was playing, you know, uh, Starcraft one or Diablo one back in the mid nineties, like it was these micro communities all centered around either IRC or Battle.net, whatever it was, but it was small groups of skills, right? Small groups, 30, 50 people, something like that. Right. Yep. Uh, I think we're heading back that direction. Um, I think that um, 
when when we as an industry started opening up things like global matchmaking, I think that's when you start to really see massive spikes in toxicity, right? Um, and you see that in you know Twitter and Facebook and all that as well. Is that when you have access to everybody and and you basically have this like drive by interaction with people who you'll never see again, and, and in many cases, especially in things like matchmaking or Twitter, you'll like you'll just never see this person again. You treat them like a commodity, like an other. And you're just less likely to treat them like a human, right? That's just kind of like human nature for whatever reason, right? Um, you know, we saw this in World of Warcraft, right? Um, Mike Mike Morhai yeah. uh, talk, spoke at one point at a panel about how um, when they uh, turned on Dungeon Finder, it was for all the right reasons, right? Dungeon Finder was to make it easier to get into dungeons because it was really hard to get into. It was trying to make it more accessible so more people could enjoy the content. All the right reasons, right? And then what it did was it, just, it, it inadvertently destroyed the community, right? Because some of that friction... Uh, helped build community, uh, kind of overcoming the hardship of finding people. And then you'd want to find the same people because you'd have a good experience with them and you'd build community. Like the WoW, those WoW servers. And then you run dungeons with them, you, you run raids right. with them, et cetera. It's yeah. the same group. Yeah. You know, WoW exactly. servers were 1,500 people at the time. So 750 per, per Horde and Alliance, right? Um, and basically start slicing by level and stuff like that. Next thing you know, you're basically looking at the same 30, 50 to 100 people when you're going to an auction house, when you're running around a zone, when you're running a dungeon. That's a really sweet size, right? That's a Dunbar number, I think it's called, right? Like that's a sweet size for communities. Um, and so I think that that's like where people are headed in general is these these uh, groups. Like I don't post on social media at all anymore. I'm just done with it. Like I'm not interested in it. I, I have no, you know, uh, it's not a thing I engage with anymore. But I do, I post in Slack. All my memes go in Slack, right? Because my micro community yep, is same. my workplace right now, right? I've got my sibling group, right? Uh, and all of our spouses and stuff like that. It's like 15 people in there, right? And we, you know, post our memes and funny jokes and stuff in there, right? Like that, I think, is where a lot of the behavior is changing uh, towards that kind of uh, thing. So then you talk about discovery, right? How do you pierce those particular communities? That's a hard challenge. Um, and so I think that things like shared interests and stuff like that can play a big role. But really what, what our um, strategy um, uh, will be for our game is finding those communities and inviting them in wholesale, right? Because we believe, we know that these communities that want to play our game already exist. They just don't know about our game, right? And they exist in lots of different places. They're just kind of all over the place. They're going to be random streamer that has 20 followers. They're going to be a Discord server. They're going to be, you know, maybe there's a subreddit or something out there. It's a small subreddit, right? There's, they're going to be these like small micro communities and we got to find them in a real grassroots, like old school knock on doors sales kind of way. But we got to find them organically and then, you know, create such a hopefully joyful experience that they then bring their friends in, they bring but I think it's going to be about bringing in wholesale small communities. And it's not about this like massive advertising splash um, that you kind of just can hit, you know, uh, the top streamer and the, you know, uh, do an ad on whatever it is, uh, social media. So I, I think those, those days are gone, at least for a game like this. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. The game I always bring up that, that did that and then like had a very, had a really high, high, had an extremely steep decline. And then like leveled back out and now has like a pretty decent sized community is Apex. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. Um, they, they did a fantastic it, job. Yeah. Yeah. They, but they spent a shit ton of money right, right at the front, like a ton of money paying like Ninja a million dollars to stream the game, yeah. like a bunch of other people, et cetera, to engage inorganically. Correct. And then after about a month, players left and it like just took, fell off a deep cliff. And then, you know, bit by bit, it built itself back up to. Yeah sustainable levels that's a lot easier when you're respawn yes uh and you're a part of ea and your kpis are not 
BC investor driven with some sort of financial exit on it. I'm curious though, how you think about that as an independent studio who like presumably one day wants yeah. an exit um, because that is a whole different challenge. Like you're, I'm, you know, the BC model is growth, 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 growth. And I'm saying more and more when I'm talking to venture capitalists, et cetera, that it is like, that's cool. But like, this is going to be slower. We are going to grow and yeah. we are going to be able to build something that's profitable, but it's going to take more time than ever before for the exact reasons we just talked about. Yeah. I mean, I like, look, I'm, I'm not someone who is just like focused on quick exit, right? Like I, I built this company with co-founders and, um, you know, I'm building this game because of a love and a passion for this space. Um, and so I'm not focused on like that, that kind of just like rocket ship to a quick exit kind of thing. I want to make an amazing experience. I want to, I want to make a studio that lasts. I want to make a studio. Yes. That's profitable. So we can, you know, stay in business and keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I want to make a, a, a game that, you know, brings people lots of joy. And so like, that's really what the focus is. I, I, I do truly believe that if you make a good game and then all the other things happen, right. Um, you know, you can make a profitable business and then from there grow and do all the right things. Right. Like that's, that is very much a strategy is again, going back to that, that uh, first principle before of like, you got to make a fun game first because nothing else matters if, if you don't have a fun game uh, at the end of the day. And so, um, so yeah, so when it comes to like big marketing splash kind of thing, right. Uh, I mean, Apex Legends is just an entirely different beast than the kind of game we're making, right? It's EA backed, you know, it's a known genre. It's basically like it was, you know, building, billing essentially as like the higher quality, more mature version of Fortnite, right? During the height of Fortnite. So like they had a lot of mm-hmm. like, you know, things that uh, were unique to that particular uh, game that I think, I think what they did was brilliant. I think it, it was probably exactly what they had to do to establish a foothold and then maintain it. So, you know, hats off to that uh, marketing team and, and the developers and everyone else involved. Um, for us, you know, we've got an entirely different beast, right? We've got a new genre, right? We've got a new way to play games, a way that people haven't played before, right? Um, and so I think that in many ways, like our path to global domination looks probably more like what Roblox's path was or even Minecraft's path, right? Which was much more slow and organic, yeah. right? Like people forget that, like they think about Roblox as like this massive game and you know, this overnight sensation. And yeah, it was an overnight sensation 12 years in the making. Right. So, around, yeah. exactly. so it, took, yeah. it took a long time to get to where Been they around were since I was like a, a freshman in high yeah, school. Like right. 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 13, they released in 2006. Years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think that that's that's like more likely where, you know, maybe not taking as long as Roblox, but also Roblox, you know, if, if, it, if it took us 12 years to reach whatever it is, $10 billion market cap, I think everyone would be happy with that. Um, but um, um, but yeah, the, the, the point is that like, I think that we look a little bit more like that pattern, um, which is more about building a community. You know, um, you know, introducing the world to this new way of play that is like the future of play. I truly believe. Um, and so again, it's it's about you know building up that community first. Um, you know, working with the right um, partners, probably creators and influencers, not the ninjas of the world, smaller ones, right? And starting there, and then kind of like slowly growing piece by piece in a very organic way. I think that's the path that we'll take. And and there there are a lot of examples of games like that that did uh, you know kind of followed a path like that and did quite well. Yeah, I I want to ask about the the gameplay loop yeah. part of something like this because this is this is the hardest challenge, right? Yeah. Um, I was really sad to see. I didn't play it a ton, but I know a lot of people that deeply enjoyed the game, and I've seen this uh, with past guests of the show. Actually, um, we uh, so Omega Strikers this past yeah. week like announced that they're you know the Odyssey announced that they're shutting down basically Omega Strikers and stopping dev. Omega Strikers. Uh, had a ton of people that loved it when it first came out, but as they mentioned very transparently, and you know, hats off to them uh, as the first mention of them on this pod, they mentioned that it was really hard for retention. Yeah. 
uh, and keeping people coming back to the game over and over yeah. and over again. Um, the same issue arose with past guests of the show, Adam Boyce and Rumbleverse, yep. another game that had like a really, really nice peak right at the beginning. Yep. That's when he came on our show a little bit more than a year ago. Super great discussion. And, uh, but also just struggle to keep people, keep people engaged, yep. struggle to keep people coming back and, and then had to shut that down too. Given the fact that you are so like kind of choose your own adventure sandbox open, that's what you're building. How are you thinking about keeping people routinely engaged yeah. and engaged as a part of your game? And I'm sure part of the answer to that is community. The communities will do it for you, right? Those micro communities will do it for you. But I'm sure there's also a gameplay part of that that you have to think about. Yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, one, I think, I think what you're uh, referring to, I, I'm not like, you know, super um, like expert on those games you mentioned, but I think that there's a risk with smaller independent games when they have a big spike. Uh, early, I think there is definitely a big risk of losing the audience because I think when, um, if you look at like big publisher, big studio games, right, they'll have a spike and of course it goes down a bit and then they can kind of level off. But you commonly will forget that those games were probably worked on for seven or eight years. They did a lot of UX labs, a lot of testing. They did like deep analysis on things like the retention loops, you know, things like that, right? They 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 really understood before they went out what that looked like, and that's just typically not an option for smaller studios, right? They put out what, you know, is a good game that, you know, I think is, you know, like, I think all those these games were good games, but they didn't necessarily have seven or eight years of, of development. They didn't necessarily have access to like UX lab testing and all this like extra research to be like, are you mm-hmm. really, you know, dialing in on, you know, the core player motivations for why they're coming back over and over again, right? So they end up, you know, making good uh, guesses and, um, you know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Um and so I think that that's, that, that's a, just an extra challenge for us smaller devs is that we don't have the same resources at that level um, that a big studio has. Uh, so for us, you know, we are definitely thinking about retention a lot. It's where I spent a lot of my career uh, was specifically within those systems. Um, and one of the things that we uh, developed at, at Epic was this framework that we called REGS, um, which uh, stands for Rewards, Events, Goals, and Social. And the idea was that, um, that to increase retention, um, you got to make sure that you thread regs through every single feature. Like retention isn't just about like a paint by numbers. Oh, you got to add a daily quest and you got to have a login bonus. and You got to have a whatever. I'm just going to like free to play things. But like, you know, it, it wasn't about that. It was about really deeply looking through every single system and making sure that the entire game is supporting rewards, events, goals, and social, right? Um, every single thing should speak to all four of those at some point. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's something that like we're still not at that level of development yet where we've got answers to that on everything you know we've got our core loop we got kind of like what what the kind of like um core session of the gameplay is you know uh, you know we've got a, we're starting to get pieces of that but um really we're just now going to be start shifting our focus into things like regs um you know we're just getting our front end online yep. now basically for the first time um because you know part of the other challenge that we have with this game is inventing a new genre means like you know what are the interaction models? How do you generally play? And so a lot of the initial time yeah. is spent on that uh, and making sure that that was good. Um, you know, I haven't mentioned uh, this particular detail yet, but like uh, our game is a video game with a human GM, right? And so what is the GM experience in our game? That's not something you typically see in video games. So a lot of the time and effort was spent on uh, making sure we call them a guide, um, you know, making sure the guide experience is fun and joyful as well, because we, we view that as another player in the game that has a specific role but they're a player, they should be having fun, it should mm-hmm. be work and homework and all this stuff. And there's a lot of challenges 
with the GM experience in games like Dungeons and Dragons or other tabletop RPGs that we really want to solve for. We want to solve structurally, um, uh, like basically how, how you play so you can play every day. So you can mix up your groups because we viewed that as a major problem for retention. So there's a lot of like core game structural things that we were focused on first to kind of like really make this compatible for a video game uh, and make it joyful and simple and accessible and approachable and all those things. Um, so we haven't quite gotten to like, oh yeah, we also have this particular loop um, that'll really kind of like get you. I mean, we've got progression. That's a big part of that. That really speaks to rewards and goals in particular. Also, our progression is completely tied to social. So we've got the RG and S in there. We just haven't really gotten the E in yet. Um, but, um, but yeah, we're still, I guess, early. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think, uh, it's interesting that you spent some time working on or around world of Warcraft because it is having put, spent a lot of time in that yeah. game. It is like the quintessential play through the expansion, huge sale number, right? That happens once a year, every 18 months, depending on what it is. Right tons of play base and then drops but the floor of world of warcraft actually is pretty healthy for the most part like the people that play it every single day and grind it out and like play you know non like event level raids just like play the routine things dungeon grind etc obviously the spike is massive and that's like where ab makes some of their money um but it has a healthy floor and i think that's the challenge as a game developer right is having a healthy floor and, and then being able to achieve that high ceiling as well. Yeah. And making sure that you're, especially for like a live service game, that you're always growing, right? That you're, that your K factor is always over one, like whatever it is that you're doing, are you growing just a little bit more, right? Because if you're doing that, then you can keep doing it. And hopefully the curve is ultimately exponential. And that that's basically the Roblox story, right? That they're just always going up just a little bit, little bit, little bit. But as that curve starts to bend, it starts to accelerate. And so, yeah, it's absolutely a big challenge. I mean, it's, a, it's really a challenge for every business. Um, but, you know, for video games, it's all tied around the topic sure. of, um, you know, retention and joy and gameplay loops and all those kinds of things. Uh, last question before I ask you a couple things about uh, Blizzard yeah. and Epic. Um, I want to ask you, when, what is the development timeline looking like for you guys now? When do you think we'll see the first bits of yeah. the game? Uh, when when are you thinking about public release? I'm sure some of that is like up in the air, depending on when you feel comfortable with with it. But like, what is in your head? What yeah, you I mean, it's it, yeah, you're right. It's it's up in the air. I mean, where we're at right now is uh, we do play tests a lot. We've got like a demo build that I've been on like a bit of a roadshow with, um, and so that's great to be able to get like lots of feedback and show the game to lots of different folks, whether it's like business partners or friends and family or whatever it is. Earlier this year, we did five months of what we called game nights. Uh, where we brought in friends, family, business partners, external communities, like some of those communities I was mentioning before, like start bringing some of them in as well. Uh, and every single week we played with them. And so it was every Thursday from 4 to 8 p.m. Eastern, you know, log into our Discord, play the game, uh, you know, fill out a survey. And so we did that for five months and that was great. We got a lot of feedback then, uh, really encouraging feedback as well to like start like seeing that some of the hypotheses we had were playing out. Like, you know, have we made the guide experience joyful, for example? And you know, are people willing to try guiding after their first game? Uh, and, and the answer to those questions are like, yeah, mm-hmm. actually some of our stuff is working. And the game was pre-alpha, right? In fact, it was, it was fun because we, we, like our, our general like survey feedback we were getting was really positive. Um, and then I would dig into like the lower numbers, like, you know, someone would give it a three out of five. Um, and I look at like the, the comments that they would leave uh, to go with it. Um, and the, uh, you know, one of them was something like, oh, I would have given this game a five, but it crashed. Uh, so I'm giving it a three. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, it's pre-alpha. It's going to crash. But, you know, so it's encouraging that they basically yeah. like the game. <laughs> I love those reviews, yeah. by the way. <laughs> right. It's like you just launch like a really work in progress product and people are just like, this shit stinks. Yeah. It doesn't run. And it's like you were participating in the thing to make yeah, it run yeah, better. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. It's the expectation. Right. Like, I, 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 there was another person in there who was like, 
oh, get, you know, like, this game would be a five out of five, but I'm giving it a four out of five because the character progression isn't in yet. It's like, okay, great. And so, you know, you know, our, our numbers, you know, had, had some of that in there, but ultimately the way I interpreted it was very encouraging of like, they're asking for more of the game. They like the game. They want more of it. And they're disappointed that they don't have more of the game. So that's, yeah. cool. that's a great place to start. Right. So we did that earlier this year. Uh, we're doing this like demo focus now. We, we hope to, to be bringing back online this very like private uh, test very, very soon. Um, and then sometime next year, uh, we intend to announce the game and start like an early access as well. So, you know, we're getting there. Um, our early access, like I think a lot of um, kind of indie studios, it'll be a true early access. This isn't like a marketing early access where the game is completely done. Like this will be, this will be early, right? For, for, for true early adopters who want to see uh, the game and be a part of development. Um, so we're hoping to do that next year. And then from there, you know, got it. grow and launch and all that after. Got it. Well, you said you watched the road interview. So these are uh, a little bit of the more difficult questions uh, as, as they came for him too. Um, you know, a lot, a lot has happened at both of the companies that you worked yeah. at prior to your time of being an indie dev. Um, the first is uh, Blizzard. And I want to talk about Blizzard because so much has changed, um, whether it be the sexual harassment allegations that the company has been facing. Um, to the general work culture uh, issues that they've been facing too, regardless of the sexual harassment, but more like labor and people being yeah. disgruntled and really unhappy with management. Obviously now have a new owner yeah. as of last month, Microsoft, and a lot of the people I've talked to that work at Activision Blizzard across both companies, Activision and Blizzard, uh, think that Microsoft will be a much better counterparty to negotiate and much better management. Yeah. And I, I can see know, that. have a lot of trust in Phil Spencer yeah. and his team. Um, I'm curious as an outsider, considering you've not worked there for a yeah. while, kind of your broader thoughts on what's been going on there and the culture, uh, the culture problems that exist. Yeah. So like you said, I left eight years ago last month. So it's been a while since I've been there. Um, you know, when all the news broke, I was definitely very, you know, sad and shocked and also, you know, not surprised in some ways. And so, um, you know, it was, it, it was a lot um, to kind of like see all this and to know that, you know, people who I knew um, you know, and, and loved and cared about were going through very hard times. And so like my, my personal reaction was that like most of my time at Blizzard was good for me, right? I didn't have a particularly bad experience. I started, um, when I was 22, I think. Um, and so I basically like, you know, I, I was a programmer on Starcraft. I would kind of show up in the early days, especially I would show up kind of write my code and go home. Right. Um, and so I was very like, um, oblivious to a lot of, um, what was going on around me. And so my reaction then when I saw, when I heard about all this was kind of regret for not seeing, not, you know, understanding what was going on for not being able to be a better ally, um, because I was, you know, missing it, didn't realize it was there. Um, and so that was, that was, you know, my, you know, the, the, the sadness I experienced was really around that regret of not, not seeing and not realizing this was going on. I think that a lot of us, uh, even even people like me that know people at Blizzard, are were really surprised at the senior level com of complicity. You know, there there was uh, one allegation of um, racism that uh, from someone that worked there that like stunned that came out right around the same time as the as the lawsuit that stunned me as like holy mm. shit, like this, you know, uh, it was a racist, racism allegation against Kim Fan. Mm. Uh, I know Kim. I know has been yeah. very pro-diversity. And yeah, and I was just kind of shocked to see that of like, how can someone that preaches one thing very publicly also be accused of like being racist towards someone who's 
Hispanic. Like right. that, that's mind blowing to me. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, I'm sure you talk to a lot of people there still. I'm curious if you think that the ownership change um, from the outside looking in is going to be super impactful and if culture will improve, because I will say from personal experience, having reported on the company very deeply that um, Bobby Kotick and his sort of crew of, of people at the top are not very receptive to feedback or criticism, including internally. Um, you know, they would rather plug their ears right. and say it didn't happen than be like, oh yeah, that did happen. Let's fix it. And, and I think that's why I hear when I talk to so many Activision Blizzard employees yeah. across, again, across both companies, a lot of people are like, we hope this yeah. is the opportunity to change. Yeah. Better. I certainly hope so as well. Like you're never going to get me to defend Bobby Kotick. <laughs> like, like that is not a, a stance I will ever <laughs> take. Um, and you know, what I think that's really interesting as, a, as an outsider to Microsoft, I've never worked there. I don't have a, you know, a whole lot of view into that, but as an outsider, it does appear that they've been really big forces of good in the tech industry uh, over the last five, ten years or so. Yeah. Right. Um, well, even in yeah, gaming, gaming, I mean, it came out that they they hosted like a a party that had uh, you know exotic dancers at one point yep. at GDC a few years ago, and like they got a lot yep. of shit for it, rightfully yep. so. And Phil Spencer took the yeah. egg to the face, and like has publicly talked about it yeah. and tried to address it internally. And I think like that shows. That is a much different yeah, mindset than Bobby that's right. Codex. That's like, right. Yeah, and, again, you know, the work that they've done around accessibility and stuff like that, that from, from the outside, from, you know, you know, big tech is always going to be very complicated in, in their impact in the world. But it does appear that as far as the big companies go, Microsoft does appear to be more of a good force uh, than the others. And so um, that gives me hope. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're um, you know, obviously big, there has already been big leadership shakeups, you know, as, um, uh, Activision Blizzard is you know, becoming assimilated into into Microsoft, uh, and I hope a lot of the good culture uh, that Microsoft has uh, can continue down. Um, and uh, with those leadership changes, um, I also saw um, I was on LinkedIn. I'm forgetting the details of, of who it was, but um, you know they were um, kind of um, talking about the positive um, diversity and leadership uh, as people were shifting around and stuff like this. Is like, oh look, you know now. Uh, there's a lot more women in leadership uh, in this Microsoft position because of the people that they're bringing from Activision. Like, so it seems like, you know, from what I can tell, there, there, there is an opportunity here that uh, appears to not be wasted right now. I know it's too early to tell, but like, uh, I think they're taking this opportunity to make those kinds of improvements. And, you know, I know that, I know that the, the team wants it, right? Um, you know, I think that this is something that um, people have been, you know, demanding of, of Activision Blizzard as well is to improve the culture and and I'm really proud of the people who um, have done that. You know, I'm actually quite close with many of the people who are some of the biggest horses um, in uh, things like the walkout and stuff like that. I'm very proud of them. And, you know, I, I, I support them very much. I think that, that that's great. And so, um, you know, it's, it's tough to like, because one of the challenges I have with this whole conversation is like, you know, talking about the, the cultural problems, which are very real, but then also the culture of the people and the people are demanding the cultural changes. And like, what is, what is the problem there then? Because like, if people want that change, like, you know, how does that happen? And, I think part of the challenge that you're describing uh, is that, um, you know, with Activision in particular at the top, it was it was preventing a lot of the, the uh, changes uh, from actually uh, happening. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, I am optimistic about, um, about Blizzard. Um, you know, I still have a lot of good friends there I care for quite a bit. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think that, that this can be a good thing. On the Epic front, they are having issues too, but it is not related to uh, people culture as much as it is bus like yeah. business in the way that they've ran their business. You know, we talked about earlier in the interview sort of the pitfalls of VC funding as related to games, and I think that's the problem Epic is having. Epic, like, 
I remember reporting on those rounds, 1 billion from, you know, led by Sony, 2 billion led, co-led by Sony and Lego. And like, you know, they've taken more than $3 billion in outside yeah. funding. And now they are the cycle of every game. Like Fortnite Battle Royale is not the, not as popular as it used to be. Fortnite Creative and, you know, Fortnite for you or UE for Fortnite, Unreal Engine for you, Fortnite is really, really successful. Yeah. People are building their games on top of Fortnite. It's making it easier to be a game dev. Uh, but they're not making as much money yeah. on that. And so they, you know, recently spun out Bandcamp, which as, as a like OG Bandcamp user, I never understood why they bought it in the first place. But whatever. I kind of understand the vision, but I think thought it was yeah. stupid considering I used Bandcamp way before they owned it. Um, and, you know, also spun off Super Awesome. They're like kids. Uh, I don't even know how to describe Super Awesome at this point kids like protection but also a sales mm-hmm. team i it's kind of a little bit of everything uh weird company um do you think that epic is a cautionary tale for for gaming from from that perspective obviously they've done a lot of things right they built yeah. what i think is probably the most popular game to ever grace the earth ever yeah. um but i think they also like made a lot of promises and set a lot of expectations by the money they took in etc that they you know they put themselves in a corner basically yeah you know so I guess I'll start with the same uh, disclaimer that I left Epic four years ago this month. Um, and so, you know, I've been gone for, from there for a while now as well. And I feel like four years uh, at Epic is like 20 years elsewhere because they move so fast in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't pay close enough attention to any of the VC side of things. You know, I think that um, anything I was paying attention to was more about just like, you know, uh, revenue in and cost out. And a lot of it because the lawsuit became very public information. Um, and I think that, um, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, it's exactly what Tim said in his speech at Unreal Fest, uh, which was that they were spending more than they were making for too long. And, and you know, whether that there was, you know, VC pressure or not to do that, I, I couldn't uh, say one way or the other. I know that, you know, Tim is a, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a strong force at Epic, and I would be surprised if he did anything that he didn't believe, right? I think that, um, you know, he, he very much has his vision and his mission, and that's how Epic operates. And I think that that's actually one of Epic's strengths is that they um, do have kind of a, a single person at the head that is has a strong vision and a strong mission, uh, and you know can kind of rally the troops behind that. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I, I I don't know if it was anything more than just miscalculation. You know, I, I'm not sure. Uh, this yeah, I can't really speculate on that. Um, you know, I think that you know to the cautionary tale um, aspect. I think that that is true. I think that. Um, you know, the curse of the blockbuster is a real thing. And I've seen that now a couple of times in places I've been and just observing the space. And you also see it in other industries as well, right? The curse of the blockbuster. Um, and I actually don't really know what the answer is outside of it, because what you end up with in a case like Fortnite or World of Warcraft or any of these other kind of like big hits um, is you end up with a really big hit. And that is transforming the entire company. And you're making you know a ton of money. And, you know, it's helping you grow the business and it's helping you give bonuses to people and everyone's happy and it's, it's great, right? Like, like that's, that's the dream is that you have such a big hit that, you know, you're able to, you know, help everyone who helped, who worked on it financially, they're able to keep going and that you're free from the burdens of the stress of, you know, are you going to run out of money, right? That's, that's the dream. Um, and so you have that and you have yep. that in your hand. And so you've got to do everything you can to not mess that up. And so you keep feeding that beast and you keep feeding that beast and it's going to go down in the case of games at least, right? It's going to go down because that's the natural life cycle, but you know, that's the biggest thing. And there's no, what happens is there's no other opportunity that can necessarily be as impactful as the right change in the big blockbuster, right? You can go work on next game, 
but will next game matter for the next five years? Like, like if you put, if you put a bunch of resources in that, or is that the right resources? If you've got, you know, a billion dollar game here and $30 million game here, well, why would you spend any money on the, on this other one, right? And so you end up just putting all your resources there. And then you do that for years and years and years. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh crap, we never made other thing. Or we've, we've been so focused on this that we missed big change in the market or big opportunity or something like that as someone else uh, came in. And then, so I think that whether it's, you know, Epic or Blizzard or any big organization that has a blockbuster hit, I think that you see that same story play out in a lot of, in a lot of places. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I appreciate the audience, honest answers there. Where can people find you and where can they find you? Yeah, Lightforge? right. So our website is uh, lightforge.gg. Uh, you can find out uh, very little information there right now. It's just got a couple little things on it. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm uh, Matt Shimberry on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and it, actually we didn't even get to talk about things like open salary and stuff like that. And so if anyone uh, sees any of that kind of content, you're, you're interested in reaching out to me. Um, you know, I'm available on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, to chat with people about uh, all sorts of various topics. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right. Great thank you very much. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're there, consider giving us a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you want to support us directly at Overcome and you appreciate the work that we do, you can now join our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. We have a range of benefits for our patrons, including special episodes of Visionaries and access to the video version of Visionaries. This episode was produced by Cecilia Chochetti. Our digital media intern is Beverly Perez. Special thanks to Prem Thotamkara and Sammy Daig for their help with this episode. We'll see you here next week on Visionaries. 